How was that conversation? That is a really heavy thing to have to say to your son because in a way it robs them of their innocence. You want your children to grow up feeling free to go out and be silly. So guys, you have now tuned in to the Courage and Purpose podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Lorinda Antonio. And today we have a really special guest. She's an entrepreneur. She's a huge, huge advocate for education. She has gone on to actually launch her own social enterprise, helping young black people in education and much more, which she will tell us all about. She's a wife and she's a mother. So guys, we have Christine with us today. Hi, Christine. Hi, hi, I'm really happy to join you today on this podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so very much for being on the podcast. I'm super excited to be speaking to you and I know the listeners will be excited to just feel the energy that I felt when I spoke to you the very first time and the great things that you're contributing to just for the world because I feel like whenever we're doing anything like social enterprises and we are thinking about education it's not just about you it's about humanity For me, it's about making that difference for other people. That's what kind of gets me up in the morning. Have you always been this way? What made you want to make a difference in people's lives? Yeah, I've asked myself that. And I I think growing up with a mum who is really altruistic, like my mum is the type of person you can go to and she will always have a shoulder for you to lean on. She's always looking out for other people. Um, And so I just grew up with this really fantastic role model of just how fulfilling life can be when you give back to others and you care about things and you live a life of purpose. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's where it stems from. Definitely. Mm -hmm. You know what? It makes sense. And my mum, she's always giving things to people and for the very longest time we've been telling her mom you need to stop giving so much i know like, i say exactly the same to my mom like, it's time thing. now exactly <laughs> time to do a little bit of taking and yet even yeah. now she's if i buy her something oh do you want the money and i'm like no i just want to be able to treat you i want to be able to give you some of all of this outpouring that you've got from other people but she seems like a bit of a bottomless pit so Mm. she gives 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 um and she seems to grow out of it but she's struck this fantastic balance though of really looking after her own well-being as well so she isn't um allowing people to exploit her or take her for granted it's it's very much on her terms Mm. do you not find that um when i watch my mum historically she did allow people to just take 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 and Mm. she never did anything about it but now I saw just literally the growth in her as she got older now she gives but she also looks after herself and I find that I'm currently like that as well I feel like um, I learned from my mom to just give to just care for people just to just be that nurturing loving woman and Mm. I was just giving so much of myself and in the end I was like okay you know who's giving to me not that you don't give to receive but um I was often finding myself feeling very tired and not having time for me because I was constantly making time for others but now I'm at a stage where I'm I'm making more time for me but at the same time I know that when I'm giving I feel so happy because I feel like it's part of my purpose to help other people 
Yeah. And it's funny, I think there's that generational thing as well, isn't it? Particularly with women yeah. um, of my mum's generation and maybe yours, yeah. that sense of they needed to be there for everybody else and they came bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mum was very mindful when I started my own family to be the one saying, no, stop, try and find a balance, do the same with your work, only give as much as you can, don't let them take too much out of you. So she's, she's been really mindful, I think, of her own experience of just giving so much and then wondering how you fill up your own reserves. So she's been very cautious to make sure that I'm more aware of not allowing that to happen mm-hmm. and definitely encouraging me to make time for me so that I have that capacity to keep giving because I'm finding some, some fulfillment within myself. Mm-hmm. It's so good that she's actually able to tell you that, uh, that she recognised mm-hmm. that herself and she was so quick to tell you that when you became a mother because I know so many women that are mothers and unfortunately their mother's generation has yet to realize that because they've been conditioned for so long that it's really not about you you know when you become a wife when you become a mother it's no longer about you in any aspect you cannot look after you and I feel like almost women are sometimes shamed for thinking about themselves that they have to think about (laughs) the children and the husband um, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like that is still the case to this day? Yeah, definitely. And I think if you, you look at the research since we've had this lockdown of who's doing the bulk of the work at home, yeah. it's women. We're yeah. still you know, the homemakers, so to speak, as well as wearing our other hats, whether that be social entrepreneur, employee, boss, whatever. Um, and it's a lot. We carry a lot on our shoulders. You've got all that going on. And you also have yet social enterprise. which is super exciting super exciting could you tell me a bit more about what led to you actually wanting to start your own social enterprise yeah so my why so to speak was that years and years ago when I was um going to university I realized that my decisions were really shaped by a fear of not fitting in Mm. um and I'm a great believer in education. I really believe that it, it has the potential to be a, a brilliant leveler for people um, and it's starting to open doors, open possibilities. And I definitely believe if you want to be, if you want to grow in society, if you want to be able to make a contribution, mm-hmm. education in some form is necessary for that. All the great leaders, um, Martin Luther King, Martin X, they were all educated. And even if that isn't a formal education, yeah. they made time to learn from those around them. So I absolutely believe that in a country where we've got more or less free education until you get to university, yeah. it it's so important that people get great opportunities for that. Um, And then they're lifted through and supported. And it became apparent to me that particularly black young students, even if they were getting the same grades, weren't progressing to the top universities. And that bothered me on so many levels. It rung true for my own experience. Mm. Um, And I could see it playing out with my own children as well. And for me, that's what really galvanized me was this sense that, my children shouldn't feel there are institutions that they can't go to. They shouldn't feel that they have to be brave to put certain universities down on their UCAS form. And yet they do. Mm. And luckily, I as a parent, my husband, we're there to support them and help them navigate the university process. Mm. But there are so many young black people that don't have that support. 
Um, they go to schools who, for whatever reasons, lack of resource, lack of time, can't support them. Um, they don't have that network socially or within their family and they fall through a crack and I just thought that is such a loss of potential. Um, so I set up the social enterprise called With Insight Education really to plug that gap mm -hmm. and what we do is support black heritage students that have the academic ability to fly. Um, we offer them mentoring and ongoing support to get them mm -hmm. to these great universities where they're suddenly they've got a gateway then to a much brighter future. Okay. Um, a future with better employment chances, better career opportunities, and ultimately um, an opportunity for greater social mobility. I couldn't agree more with everything you've just said, Christine. And the fact that you are looking as to how young people need to evolve in our society. The one thing that I've always been told is that you can't put a price on education, but at the no. same time, you need that support. And I can speak firsthand you know being raised by a single mother so many kids out there that do come from dysfunctional homes that do also even whether it's dysfunctional or not they could have parents especially in the uk where it's so diverse so many children within the classroom english is not their first language and if mm -hmm. english is not their first language then it most certainly will not be for their parents and when your yeah. parents are unable to help you with certain um, educational things, you know, with homework that you take back because they also don't speak the language, it does make such a huge difference. And to have people that will mentor you, it does really have a positive impact on your life. I can think of so many decisions that I've made for my life, life-changing decisions. And it was because I sat down with a mentor and they were like, Lorinda, you know, do this. Maybe think about this. They always gave me food for thought. Yeah. And it just inspired me. Absolutely. It's that advice. It's that guidance. It's somebody in, with the knowledge who's investing mm. that time in you. Mm -hmm. um, and for the young people on the programme, they don't have that anywhere else. And so a really common feedback that I get is, I wanted to go to this university. So we're not talking about a lack of aspiration. I get so infuriated when people say, oh, black people just aren't succeeding because they just don't want it enough. Yeah. That's not the case. No. It is all the other little things that their more affluent peers or peers from other um, ethnic groups have access mm -hmm. to. It's mm -hmm. understanding what a university admissions tutor is looking for in a UCAS form. It's knowing that you shouldn't just be doing your, your schoolwork. There's all this extra reading that you need to be doing, podcasts that you should be listening to, lectures you should be attending. And mm -hmm. all it takes is just somebody to give this young person the time to guide them. Yes. And the results are phenomenal. They are phenomenal yeah. and they're life changing because as you said, what we're doing is allowing these young people to create a, an alternative future for themselves that otherwise wouldn't be available to them. Yes, to be seen. You, you are just Absolutely. simply allowing them to be seen and to be heard, to be felt, yeah. which a yeah. lot of the times, a lot of these kids don't feel like they are. You touched on, um, you know, it's for black heritage kids. Is there any other reason why you felt like um, you wanted to, to give a focus on the black heritage children? Yeah. Um, in terms of stats, the, the okay. statistics are really clear. Black students have the lowest entry rates to high tariff universities. So there's clearly a problem there and it's an enduring one. It has been going on for years. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to do something for this group specifically because there are other great access programs out there trying to get um, underrepresented groups into university, but they don't, I don't feel, offer the nuance of a program that is laser focused just on black students. Mm-hmm. And I felt that 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 laser focus, that nuance was important. Um, and I did a post on LinkedIn about a week ago saying, look, I'm not BAME, I'm black. And it's really, really important that we stop shying away behind these big labels of like non-white is BAME, i.e. other, and assuming that all those others have a shared experience or one experience, one story, so to speak. We don't. So the black students that I work with will have had a different historical context, um, different challenges throughout the education system. They'll have different perceptions of both themselves and what they see around them than, say, for example, a Chinese student. And that needs to be recognised. And I feel really strongly that my programmes do that. They give them that safe space to be recognised. And as you said, to be seen, a safe space to be seen. So yeah. the student mentors that, um, that we have on the programme are predominantly black heritage student mentors as well. Mm-hmm. So right, right around the whole programme is built around saying, we see you, we hear you, mm-hmm. we're here for you. Mm-hmm. And we can provide you with really positive role models of what you can achieve so you don't feel so alone. Mm-hmm. I know when I was looking at universities, that was the thing that will all to my dying day will stick with me is that I went around the country looking at universities and not seeing another person like me on campus and thinking, mm-hmm. I cannot do this. I cannot leave um, my North London multicultural area and go to a place where I would feel so culturally isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, and things are getting better, but I still speak to students who say, I cannot go to that university because I will feel too alone. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, I, I get that. But we, we have to get past this system where we're asking our young black people to be brave to go to certain universities. That's just not fair. No, it's not fair. It's not fair. And and the fact that in 2020, our institutions are so whitewashed. It's unfair for so many children to go, young people to go to university, have lecturers that don't look like them. That's something that really stood out to me. When I was doing my law degree, I didn't have not one lecturer that was black. And Mm. I just thought, and I thought to myself, I know there's hundreds of staff within the law department. And I thought to myself, so does this mean that black people don't want to be law professors? Does this mean that black people are not intelligent enough to be law professors? Or is it maybe that they are simply not being given the opportunity? Because I find it very hard to believe that in such a diverse city like Nottingham, there isn't not one black law professor. It's it's infuriating. Um, There's a real problem in academia for um, representation of black people. And you're right, it's, it's one of those things that you think it's not right, but the, the ramifications of not seeing people in those positions are huge because you're, you're absolutely right. There's a, then a tendency to internalise your understanding of, of where we can get to or what mm-hmm. we can achieve. And that's, that becomes self-limiting. It definitely does. And luckily for me, I know it's not because black people are not intelligent enough. I know it's not because black people um, do not want to become law professors. That just makes no sense to say that. You know, when I look at the television and I don't see black people in a lead role, you can only make the conclusion that 
either black people do not want to be in a position of power or there is something clearly there is an underlying issue there are gatekeepers that are stopping us from getting to those positions because it makes absolutely no sense which literally takes me on to the black lives matter movement you know the structural racism that we see not only in the uk you know in the us all over the world where year after year you have you have one black actor taking an oscar it's just one you you have this tokenism system where you know if we put one black person to represent them that will keep them quiet it's so nice to see that people are feeling more and more comfortable to come out and i'm seeing organizations some of them actually making real accountability where they are realizing that they have not been doing good enough it's not it's not been good enough to have 60 white employees and have five black employees and give yourself a tap on the back and say we are diverse i've been really heartened by just how people are being so frank it's saying you know what i i do see the inequality i do recognize the history i absolutely do believe now that we've got to have tangible solutions and i take a lot of strength from that Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news. Yesterday I was watching it and Boris Johnson made a comment that we are almost in this victim mentality. And also he has also ordered a commission into the race inequalities. How, how do you feel about a commission, another commission being put together? Well, when I said I felt optimistic, I was thinking people on the ground, organisations, you and I just feeling now we can have this chat and people mm-hmm. will listen to it and um, with yeah. a guard down, for example. But when it comes to our politics, I feel very different. Yeah. And I feel that what the government is trying to do is kick this into the long grass and mm-hmm. distract us. Yeah. So we had the whole thing around statues. Mm-hmm. And I was dismayed at the thought that Black Lives Matters would distill into oh, they're tearing down our statues. And, you know, they did They did really try and make that the topic. And when that exploded over the weekend with essentially what were far-right riots, I think they thought, oh, gosh, we've gone too far. And now suddenly they're, they're talking about commissions. We don't need another commission or review. We know the problems. Yes. We know them. We have had reviews in the past. We've had David Lammy's review. We've had the Windrush review. We know... As we speak, you and I are speaking today, we know that there are more BAME people dying in our community at a disproportionate rate. Why would we allow that to continue for six months while they have a review? You know, it's just not good enough for talk. We've done the talk now. What I need to see is action. And I am fearful that we've got a government that don't want to take action because actually the status quo works really well for them. Um, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, another commission that's going to be funded by the taxpayers. Mm. Another commission to tell us everything we already know. I just feel like it's once again, it's the crumbs. It's the, it's the crumbs to distract us. Like um, I was re- reading yesterday in London, there's now a street that they've painted Black Lives Matter. I think it's in yeah. Woolwich that I saw that. And I just thought all of these little distractions are not going to be good enough. We've had no. streets named after so many black activists and yet we still we're still here in 2020 and George Floyd was still murdered. Black people yeah, are still twice as likely to die in police custody. Mm. You know, we're more we're nine times um, likely to be stopped and searched. Yeah it's it's not good enough a commission is not good enough and it does just seem like it's it's more convenient for the current government to continue with the legislations and the policies that they have in place because 
they benefit the group of people that are in power and which almost makes me feel like okay you know we are doing all of this and clearly we clearly just need to continue to protest we need to continue to protest and we need to continue to really discuss reform that's what we really need yeah. we need reform amongst the constitution and also within institutions because the talk that we've been doing it's just it has not been good enough if we no. were to have the reforms Christine, what type of things do you think we should be looking at in regards to the reforms? What, would you, what changes would you like to see? Um, so fundamentally, going back to my passion around education, mm. I think we definitely need to look at education. We need to see a change in what our young people are taught mm. um, so that they understand the contribution of black people to the prosperity of the UK as we sit in here and, and speak to each other in 2020. Yeah. Um, so we need to do more than just talk about slavery. We need to talk about how those repatriation payments have contributed to the Industrial Revolution, which allowed this country to then leap and bound, um, become very, very rich. We need to talk about where black people, when they came from Windrush, where they worked, how they propped up the reconstruction of the country after the war. And we need to stop thinking of black history as black history and then British history as British history. The two are so intertwined. You know, we're in this together and it's so important, I think, that young people grow up with a, a richer and a truer understanding of this country's history. Because as things stand, it's just too glossy, it's too binary, there's good and there's bad. But actually, history isn't like that life isn't like that so let's be honest with them about the atrocities of the slave trade for example because they need to hear that they need to know what happened why it happened and not so that they can feel guilty i i have no interest in self-flagellation of people i don't want them to feel guilty i just want them to know Mm -hmm. to understand because I think a lot of the hate that can, you can direct towards another group comes out of sheer ignorance so the education system has a lot to do in terms of stemming that ignorance at its root and providing an alternative narrative to one that young people might experience at home or from certain media that they they're exposing themselves to mm -hmm. I think also employment ultimately Black people are amongst the worst socioeconomically in this country. And we need to look at why that is happening and we need to address that. So it would be looking, for example, what, why are black women the worst paid in the workplace? Mm -hmm. let's, call out, let's call out companies that have that practice. In the same way we, we publish gender pay gap, let's look at ethnicity pay gaps and start to ask companies to be accountable for their decisions. Let's think about the recruitment and progression of black people throughout an organization so we get a better representation at senior levels. For example, you know, the FTSE 350 companies, there's only 178 black directors out of over two and a half thousand firms. It's just not good enough. That, that isn't representative of the talent. And what it means yeah. is that you have companies making decisions with just a single lens and they would be so much richer both figuratively but also in terms of actual bottom line what you find is companies that are diverse they do better they have a better understanding of their client base they have greater diversity of thought and experience they can bring to their decision making 
Um, and then finally, the other big blocker, I think, is policing. We still have a policing system that makes black people feel criminals first. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not aware of any black person, any black male, I should say, who hasn't had some kind of interaction with the police. And you know, when <laughs> it's funny that people talk about, oh, I have to have the talk with my children. And for me, the talk with my son wasn't, you know, the birds and the bees. It was, if you get stopped by the police, mm -hmm. this is how you need to handle the situation so that you can walk away mm -hmm. intact. And, you know, that, that is a conversation I shouldn't have to have. So let's be honest about what's going on with our policing, where it's not working, where the, there are such tensions between the community and the police that they're not coming together um, and moving forward together. You've just touched on having a conversation with your son. How mm -hmm. was that conversation? That is a really heavy thing to have to say to your son because mm -hmm. in a way it robs them of their innocence. You want your children to grow up feeling free to go out and be silly and actually our children don't have that luxury and it's not just with police and actually it's right across the board they don't have that luxury because there is such a stereotype of what a young boy of colour represents that right from relatively young age you have to be saying to them okay be quiet don't do this you know hold yourself in a certain way speak in a certain way be careful of the way that which you stand um you know my son is well he's now 15 but he's got a group of other um boys of color and we we live in a nice area in north london and they'll go to the park and people will get out of their way people will move their children mm -hmm. and that's heartbreaking mm -hmm. yeah he wouldn't we call him dr doolittle he won't harm a fly he's so gentle mm -hmm. and yet he's from quite a young age obviously having this perception of he's mm -hmm. seen as a danger and as a threat yeah. and so we have to do that role of telling him he's not but this is just the way the world is and as mm -hmm. i said it doesn't need to be like this it shouldn't be like this no. and it needs to change it's it's time that we don't have to have those conversations with, with our boys definitely and i think that change would definitely come when when white parents start actually talking to their sons also and mm -hmm. their daughters you know teaching them that you do not have to move when you see black people. You don't have to cross the street. You don't have yeah. to grab your handbag. I'm a black woman and there's been times that I'm walking and there are elderly people, just people in general, and I'm behind them and they grab, they grab their bags and they start walking faster. And yeah. I can stop and I think to myself, what am I going to do to you? I'm at a point where I can't take it seriously. Yeah, exactly. I cannot take it seriously for the life of me because you've clearly got issues but yeah. it's unacceptable because clearly i'm not going to be taking it seriously but it's not the type of thing that i want my children or my family members to experience no and actually one thing that's come out of um black lives matter movement is this term anti-racist mm. um and that it's an active participation in in combating racism mm -hmm. um and then, you know what i have to say that that was that's been so enlightening to me because I, I have so many fantastic people that I know who aren't racist and they provide really brilliant role models for their children. But I'm not sure that they sit down and they have the talk 
with their children mm -hmm. and yet what we do know is that children are so influenced by lots of other things what they see around them who their friends are what they hear at school yeah. and so i think it would be great you're right if parents do make an active decision to have that conversation time and time again it can't be a one-off thing yeah. but just that constant reinforcement of the worth of black people in society that that we aren't a threat that we, we are not so fundamentally different that we we're beyond being understood mm -hmm. um and that that kind of grassroots taking ownership for the world in which we live i think would make a big difference you also touched on the employment um in regards mm -hmm. to the reforms that you would like to see it's so funny to me when i work with organizations and you look at the board and you also look at the uk corporate governance code that mm. clearly states you know it states that in order for there to be great governance there needs to be a diversity in skills in gender in age in ethnicity and i do just often ask myself who is running these organizations what are they looking at that they think it is acceptable to have six white male executive directors and one female white executive director and they genuinely think okay this is what's going to make us great you know this mm -hmm. is what's going to make the board great and not only that yeah this is the face of diversity i would just love to understand the thought process behind it and even with just the having the one female or even just having the one black person on the board it is still tokenism it's still yeah. not good enough you know what i just think that some of it I, I imagine most of it actually just comes down to doing what they do because it's what they know if mm -hmm. that makes any sense so you've got a recruitment process that has worked in the past for you and you're doing okay as a business um and then you might go through a conversation where you think oh we're we're not very diverse but you use that same recruitment process that has delivered you the board that you've already got yeah. and then you try and um, recruit say black people or women using that same process and obviously that doesn't work. It's not that we're hard to reach. I don't believe that. I don't believe that somehow we're making ourselves difficult to identify. It's that something about the recruitment process isn't hitting us. Something about the nurturing of talent within the organization isn't hitting us. So I think it's for companies to really engage with what are the blockers internally that are stopping us from bringing people up through the organization what is it about where we advertise for our roles which means that we're getting the same candidate is it the language that we're using is it where we advertise for example you know it's it's subtle things like that and i don't think that a board or an organization should do it on their own i think now is the time to say we've recognized there's a problem let's go and speak to people who can actually help us solve it so there are diversity and inclusion specialists out there there are panels of of young black professionals go and engage with them go to where people are and ask them for their honest feedback on what their experience of trying to engage with you as an organization is and hopefully 2020 clearly seems to be the year of change the year of mindfulness the year that mm. so many people really opening their eyes to unlearn a lot of the things that were taught to them and yeah. to just do things differently yeah absolutely it's that consciousness now it is um that is different to anything i've ever seen before because we've had black lives matters before but yeah. this time i'm seeing a real willingness to self-reflect mm 
Yes. Um, and to accept that there is an area that they don't know about, that there's a real determination to find out more and to change things. And I, I'm, I'm so buoyed by that. I just hope that we can hold on to that um, because you can already see in the media that the whole Black Lives Movement, it, it's gone off the front page now. Yeah. Um, and I don't want that momentum to be lost. I don't want, as you said, for it to be just symbolism or tokenism yeah. um, because now is such an opportunity to cross a change in direction for us to pivot as a society and to be fairer and we shouldn't lose that momentum. That reminds me of um, when we first spoke and I remember we touched on having a figurehead mm. and that's one thing that um, I feel like we don't particularly have in the UK with yeah. the Black Lives movement. I'm seeing a lot of people saying a lot However, I feel like we need a focus. And in order to have a focus, I feel like having that figurehead will make a huge difference. Someone that could yeah. really lead us to that reform, someone that will keep yeah. the movement going, but that's someone awesome. that's knowledgeable and that is passionate and that their heart is really in it. Because if your heart isn't in it, and if you haven't, if you haven't got the knowledge, the education to actually back what you're saying, to actually carry yourself into these meetings, it's not really going to help. No. Yeah, I, I, I remember when we spoke last week, um, that was my, one of my concerns, is that you've got all of this goodwill now, but there's no, no one really galvanising that into a certain direction um, and thinking strategically how to keep things moving forward, um, who to engage, what conversations to have. And therefore you do fall victim to talking about statutes for the best part of the week, you know, yeah. when actually we needed somebody to be saying, no, it's not about the statues. Those are yeah. that's symbolic and that's probably indicative of a lack of education. But what we really need are ABC, systematic change in these areas. And I, 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 I can't think of another social movement where there hasn't been a figurehead to keep things moving forward that has been successful. We do need somebody or a collective of people that are going to own this. I agree with you. Christine, you mentioned just, you know, the consciousness and, you know, just being more mindful. Um, mm. What inspires Christine? Oh, that's a good question. I am determined to make a difference. And I know that sounds cliche, but I really am. I want to be able to reflect on my life and think, yeah, I counted for something. Um, mm. There are other people that are doing better because I've, made a difference to the way in which they could live their lives mm -hmm. um, and so I've been chair of governors of a primary school for coming up to 12 years now um, and that was probably my first big step into doing something in a voluntary capacity but that really was driven by this sense of there needs to be a real uplift in, in what we're doing for our young people um, and I feel I've got the skill set, I've got the time, um, I want to give back and it is tremendously rewarding. So ultimately I think what inspires me is this sense of giving back but doing it in a way that empowers people then to be stronger for themselves um, and puts them in a position where they can then go on to help others. So um, a part of my career was in environmental marketing and I loved it. Mm -hmm. um, the Caring for the environment and tackling climate change is really close to my heart. 
but there is something very personal and rewarding about being able to look a young person in the eye and say decisions I made, conversations I had, um, the partnerships that I've been able to put in place for you are allowing you to take this great leap forward that otherwise won't be available to you. Mm-hmm. And you've grabbed that opportunity and you're making such a great life for yourself now. And so yeah, that's what really inspires me. Such a beautiful way to put it. You've also done a bit of work on the environment. Yeah. How was that? How, um, how did you get into that? I took A-level geography. So I've always been minded um, to care for our planet. Um, But what happened is that um, I used to work in telecoms. I took redundancy and again, was just thinking, what do I want to do that I feel can make an impact, will have a a real lasting legacy? And doing something in the environmental space really called to me at the time. So I worked in that sector for 15 years. And as I said, it's been really rewarding to see how that whole idea of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So when I started working in that sector, um, people would be like, what, global warming? No, not really. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't care. So people would leave on lights, they'd run water, they'd drive everywhere. And over the years, we've seen that consciousness now of how I act today is going to impact both the society that we live in, but also the legacy that we leave for our children, grandchildren, the next generation, and taking some responsibility for that on a personal level. And from that ability to say, I I can affect change. I can change the way in which I shop. I can change the way in which I um, transport myself around, for example. Little decisions I can make can make a difference, but also, my voice can drive change at the top. We have seen climate change rise up the political agenda now. Oh, yeah. And I feel that that's very similar to what can, what can be achieved um, with the Black Lives Movement. Ultimately, governments, whatever hue, they are going to respond to what they feel that is important to their electorate. So if as a, as a country we say, this matters to us now, this level of inequality in our society is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It's not in keeping with the British values that we assume and that we say we stand for. And I think we will start to see this more and more on the political agenda. And we will start to see policies coming out that do reflect the challenges of different ethnic groups that this country has. No, you're absolutely right. You've done work with the um, environment and now, you know, with the education and with the mentoring, it's social. So yeah. Christine, one of the reasons why um, I gravitated towards you was because when I went through your profile and after what you posted, it was clear to me that you wasn't only about words. It is not simply about the words. It is about the actions. I live by people's actions. It doesn't matter what you tell me. If your actions do not reflect it, I'm simply not interested and you know you want to inspire people and you said that you want to um, have a positive impact in people's lives Christine you are doing it you are really doing it already you You are really about that life you did not come to play you came to slay and let me tell you something you are (laughs) doing it and I love it I absolutely love it and I can't imagine so much more that you're going to be able to achieve with continuing to run your social enterprise and just reaching more people. I feel like more young people need 
to hear you. They need to see you. They need to know that Christine Kinnear exists. Oh, thank you. Um, you're, you're right about the actions. A couple of years ago, um, I did this thing where we had to learn my love languages and there's five options, but my two were actions and time. Mm. So for me to show that I care about something, it's not enough to just donate money, for example. It's not enough for me just to say nice things. For some people, that, that's what works for them. Everybody's different. But for me, for me to show my love and, my, and to realise my passion, it was about giving time to something and having actions that I can show and um, demonstrate how I'm feeling and, and what's important to me. And that's definitely fed through to my work. Um, so I'm really hopeful that I can grow the social enterprise. We're continually looking for new universities to work with, new corporate partners, because it's not just the now, it's about intergenerational change. And I think personally to be part of that, to be spearheading that is, is beautiful. It keeps me awake at night sometimes, but that's my own cost to bear. <laughs> but yeah, but, you know, it's, it's something that gets me up in the morning. It keeps me um, going even when I'm tired. Um, and it, it's something that I can honestly look at myself in the mirror and think, yay, I'm living true to me. I'm living according to my values and my purpose um, and that is so fundamental I think to my sense of worth and my mm -hmm. sense of um, direction and, and just generally my whole sense of growth. You are living it, your values, your principles, you stand by it, you stand for something and I'm grateful to you, I'm grateful to you, my children will be grateful, <laughs> people like you. <laughs> Thank you. For making a difference. I'm sure your children, they, don't, they may not yet realise, but they will eventually get to know who their mother is and the huge difference that she's making, not just for them, but for other people's children. It is about the legacy we leave behind. So thank you, Christine. Thank you so very much for being on the podcast, for speaking to us and for just being the light that you are and being so inspirational. You inspire me, so I'm sure you inspire so many other people. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our chat this afternoon.